<laughs> coming to today. Uh, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce uh, Catherine Olmer. Uh, she received her PhD from McGill University in June 2018, uh, and she recently completed uh, a postdoc fellowship at the UCL Institute of the Americas. So we have the pleasure of hosting Catherine uh, for several months in uh, last summer and uh, beginnings of the following term. Uh, and that was, um, she won that in a competition organised by the International Council for Canadian Studies, and that's quite a prestigious studentship. Her work focuses on the period between the 1880s and the 1930s and applies a transnational lens to Canada's modern planning history. Uh, she's already managed to produce a couple of publications, um, one of which uh, a couple of years ago now in urban history and another one which I think is forthcoming unless it's appeared. Yeah, it's coming in... I think they're calling it spring 2019, but it's probably coming out in June. Right, so coming out uh, <laughs> soon. Uh, soon. Yeah, soon. <laughs> in the Urban History Review. Um, Catherine's current research explores urban planning as a tool central to settler colonial projects of establishing Western Canadian cities as Anglo-Protestant space and integrating them within global municipal networks. Uh, this project used the introduction of the modern infrastructure and planning uh, of Canadian cities, not just as discrete improvement efforts, uh, but as tools wielded to civilise the urban environment uh, and its citizens. So taking a very broad uh, perspective on urban planning. So um, please uh, join me in welcoming Catherine as she talks about Canadian planning and its British connections, the evolution of urban planning in English Canada, 1890 to 1930. So, um, good evening. Thanks. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking Tony for inviting me to take part in the Institute's Canadian Studies Seminar. I'm just also going to set my little timer going to make sure I don't ramble on for too long. <laughs> Um, I'd also like to thank you all for being here this evening to listen to my presentation, Canadian Planning and its British Connections, the Evolution of Urban Planning in English Canada between 1890 and 1930. Um, my talk this evening reflects on my recently completed doctoral project, which, as Tony mentioned, applies a transnational analysis to our understanding of progressive era Canadian urban planning history. Broadly speaking, this work explores the external influences that shaped Canadian planning, Canadian planning developments between 1890 and 1930 and examines the processes that brought foreign experts and innovations to the country throughout these years. As my research has found, from the late 1800s onwards, a varied group of middle and upper class Canadians embraced the emerging field of modern urban planning, forming connections with a growing international planning cohort, debating and circulating planning knowledge across Canada, and importing foreign models and experts to help frame new plans for urban space across the country. Yet, despite what I have found to be an abundance of evidence illustrating Canadian participation in the transnational movement, the current historical narrative does not fully account for the complex nature of Canadian interactions with this wider planning world. 
few historians have questioned the processes that brought foreign experts and innovations to the country throughout the early 1900s or explored Canadian participation in the international planning movement. To, address the, to redress these absences, I make several interventions into the current narrative of early Canadian and transnational planning history. So firstly, as the title of tonight's speech indicates, I really do consider the importance of Canadian links to the British planning movement, largely by reassessing the role of British planning expert Thomas Adams, who you see here, and you'll see that slide again later on in the talk. Adams rose to international fame through his association with the Garden City movement. He came to Canada in 1914 to act as a national-level advisor and has been credited with near-single-handedly initiating Canada's planning movement upon his arrival. By beginning my study in the, in the 1890s, over 20 years before Adams's arrival, and ending it in 1930, or tonight more so the late um, 1920s, eight years after he departed for the United States, I decenter Adams from the story of early Canadian planning efforts. Instead, I focus on the dynamic group of English-Canadian advocates who worked to connect to the transnational planning movement and who built channels to facilitate the circulation and adoption of foreign ideas across Canada. I emphasize that these individuals were active members of the international planning cohort who selectively imported ideas based on their understanding of local conditions and the wider planning field. While my dissertation is loosely chronological, its chapters are divided into distinct case studies that span the three periods my work considers. Again, those are the roughly 20 years of planning advocacy and activity before the First World War and Adams' arrival, the eight years Adams worked in Canada, and the years directly following his departure for the United States. I'd like to use tonight's talk to give you an overview of my research project by presenting on two of the studies from my dissertation that span over these three periods. I'll start by providing some background information on the rise of Canadian interest in planning and the emergence of a transnational planning movement. This is going to be a real summary, so if you are interested, I have a, a wide historiography of books and articles I can share with you on the project, but I, I tried to summarize it as best I could. Um, I will next discuss and give examples of the four main channels through which early Canadian planning advocates connected to their international colleagues and acquired foreign planning knowledge prior to Adams' arrival. From there, I'll consider Adams' work in Canada, namely his attempts to persuade each province to adopt British-based planning legislation. And as I'll show through the case study of Saskatchewan in the late 1910s, though Adams did help establish a preference for British planning solutions, local planners were not conquered by this British influence. Instead, they felt free to adapt and even reject Adams' advice, relying on the networks they had established prior to his arrival to borrow planning ideas that better suited local needs. After these sections, I'll conclude my presentation by briefly reconsidering Adams' lasting legacy on Canadian urban planning. But before I jump into the main part of this talk, I would just like to make a note about my terminology. Firstly, throughout tonight's speech, I'll generally refer to the Canadian actors I speak of as simply Canadians. I just want to note that in doing this, I am almost always referring to English-speaking Canadians. Although my wider research does consider some aspects of French-Canadian planning, um, specifically the activities of uh, the Quebec's Architectural Institute, I'm not touching on those efforts here, but I'm happy to try to answer any questions you might have about Quebec, because maybe none of you will have questions about Quebec, but before I used to explicitly state that, inevitably someone would say, what about Quebec, what about Quebec? And especially as I, I worked in Montreal. Um, 
Secondly, you'll notice that instead of calling the Canadians I study planners, I generally use terms like planning advocates or planning practitioners. Um, I do this because there were really no official planning professionals in Canada or Canadian-made planning professionals until the 1919 creation of the National Town Planning Institute. Before 1919, some landscape architects, architects, engineers, and surveyors took on planning work, but particularly between 1890 and 1914, such professionals were just one group amongst many connecting to the wider urban planning world. Um, people like urban reformers, business and real estate interests, elite philanthropists, government officials, and public health experts all claimed an interest in shaping the urban environment. And in this early period, uh, it was often their voices that spoke the loudest. Lastly, I just want to quickly describe, and again, this is a real summary, the two foreign planning approaches that dominated Canadian planning debates in the early 1900s. The first, the first was the American developed city beautiful style. Um, and my slide actually shows a city beautiful plan that was designed for Edmonton, Alberta in 1912. Uh, popularized by landscape architects like Daniel Burdham and Frederick Law Olmsted, the approach emerged in the 1890s and generally resulted in elaborate city plans that emphasized the creation of landscaped urban parks, grand roadways, and impressive classically inspired buildings. While the city beautiful found popularity in Canada in the early 1900s, by the 1910s, the cost and extravagance of such plans led to an increasing shift in attention to the British Garden City movement. This approach was pioneered by Ebenezer Howard, who was a court stenographer working in London when he published Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform in 1898. In this book, Howard called for the end of unhealthy, capitalistic urban life through the creation of a series of satellite, limited-sized garden cities. He envisioned the cities as self-sufficient entities enclosed by a green belt with spaces for business, leisure, and residency. Following Tomorrow's publication, support for Howard's work grew leading to the creation of Letchworth, the first garden city in 1904. It's just a promotional poster for Letchworth. So thanks for bearing with me while I've explained these terms. Hopefully the definitions will help clarify things and stay with you as I move through the talk. I'm now going to continue on to my next section, um, which provides some background context before I move on to my first case study. So some background. The turn of the 20th century saw the city become a central point of discussion for most industrialized nations. Interest in urban planning chiefly emerged as a response to new civic issues brought on by late 19th century industrialization. In Canada, for example, the years between 1880 and 1920 saw the country transform from a largely rural to predominantly urban nation. Whereas in 1881, roughly one million individuals resided in urban areas, by 1921, over four million people, which was almost 50% of the population at that time, were urban dwellers particularly in larger cities like Toronto and Montreal. I think I have a picture. This is some um, tenement slum conditions in Toronto. Uh, particularly in cities like Toronto and Montreal, the pace of urbanization intensified issues of overcrowding, insufficient civic services, and public health, triggering new debates over how cities might best be organized and generating interest in modern, modern planning efforts. I'll just make a note that these are some of the most... Um, stunning photos of, of tenements and slum conditions I've discovered for early Canada, and they're actually held by Liverpool archives because that's where Thomas Adam um, 
left his collection. So if you want to see pictures of slums in Toronto and Winnipeg and Regina, the, the place to go is actually Liverpool, which I've always found kind of amusing. So I'm just going to break here and explain what I mean when I use the term modern planning efforts. While the act of shaping urban space to reflect social, political, economic, and cultural norms predates, or needs predates the late 1800s, what distinguished the approaches to planning that evolved from the 1890s onwards was their general insistence that the component aspects of a city be considered as an interconnected whole. As historian... That's right As historian Stephen B. Ward emphasizes in his definitive work on the topic, modern planning represented a shift from prior methods that focused more on the laying out of streets and discrete civic improvement projects. It instead expressed the newer functional priorities of land use, infrastructure, efficient circulation, and social welfare. Tracing modern planning's evolution, Ward points to Germantown extension planning in the 1870s, the American City Beautiful Movement of the 1890s, and British garden city building in the early 1900s as key developments influencing the emergence of a growing international body of thought and practice. He also underscores the extent to which modern planning was defined by a strong internationalist spirit and had in part emerged from within what urban historian Pierre-Yves Saunier defines as the urban international, the international media dedicated to the study of issues relating to cities that formed during the early 20th century. By the, 19th, by the early 1900s, the common experience of trying to perfect the city and solve the issues brought on by rapid urbanization had created a shared language and increasingly a shared set of solutions. A transnational planning movement grew as civic actors, local officials, professionals, and urban reformers took advantage of developments in land and overseas travel and communication. They began corresponding and journeying over traditional geographic and political boundaries, learning of and certain learning of, circulating, and adopting innovations in urban planning. By 1909, international planning conferences and exhibitions also emerged, centralizing planning knowledge and providing forums for the discussion of new ideas. So now that I've set the scene with this background information, I want to move on to the first of the two case studies I'll be presenting to you this evening, which studies uh, Canadian urban planning networks before 1914. As my discussion, dissertation argues, Thomas Adams did not introduce Canadians to foreign planning ideas when he arrived in 1914. From the outset of modern planning's development as an international movement, Canadian planning advocates contributed to its growth by creating channels through which planning expertise was acquired, circulated, and adopted across the country. Though a preference for American planning innovations emerged during the early decades of the 1900s, Canadian planning advocates likewise linked to developments in Britain and Germany. Such associations emerged and multiplied throughout the years before the First World War as local actors connected with foreign colleagues, but also built networks across municipal and provincial boundaries, passing news across the country. Though these networks were diverse, for the purposes of my analysis, I grouped them into the four main categories I've outlined here. I'm going to go over each of these categories with you and give you some key examples of how each of the networks worked. So the first category of networks I consider are those established by elite planning brokers. Elite planning brokers were individuals who operated mainly at the national level and who used their superior political and social connections to create bridges between Canada and outside movements and facilitate planning activities within Canada. The most prominent amongst this group was Albert Henry George Gray, the fourth Earl Grey, 
and ninth Governor General of Canada, who held that position between 1904 and 1911. Even before his arrival in Canada, Gray developed an interest in, in town planning in Great Britain. He presided over the opening ceremonies at Letchworth, the first garden city, and he served on the board of the Hampstead Garden Suburb Trust. When he took up his Canadian post, his social reform concerns traveled with him. He strongly believed that urban planning would help issues of poor working class housing, public health, and public health, and he used his influence to press civic, provincial, and national actors across Canada to adopt British-influenced planning models. As I mentioned, Gray was primarily a supporter of the Garden City style of planning, and in the years before Thomas Adams came to Canada, Gray stood as one of the British movement's most influential representatives in, in Canada. Gray often spoke on the subject of Garden City planning to Canadian reform and professional groups, and he also put his, his personal connections to use to foster relations between Canadian and British planning efforts. In 1910, for example, Gray arranged for Henry Vivian, a British housing reformer and leading figure within the Garden City movement, to undertake an extensive cross-Canadian planning tour, which lasted from late August to early November. Early November. And this is... I'll summarize it here, but this is actually going to be the, um, the main subject of my next article. So if you're interested, look out in spring 2019 or June 2019. Um, anyways, Gray mobilized influential Canadian friends to help organize and fund the tour, beseeching them to house Henry Vivian as he traveled and convincing William Van Horn, the, million, the millionaire chairman of the Canadian Pacific Railway, to give Vivian a free rail pass so he could ride the train across Canada. As one of Vivian's supporters recountered, during the tour, Vivian threw himself ardently into a campaign of lectures and discussions among unfamiliar scenes and people across the wide dominion. He traveled without rest from the Atlantic to the Pacific border and made light of his physical fatigue and mental strain. On his part, Vivian recalled the tour's scale more simply and noted in an interview with the Grain Growers Guide, that I visited all parts of the Dominion from Halifax to Victoria and addressed most of the clubs which are a feature in all Canadian towns. The Vivian's visit didn't instigate a rush in new planning activity in Canada. His talks did convince Torontonian reformers to create cooperative housing, a cooperative housing suburb along the lines of Hampstead Garden Suburb. Furthermore, Vivian's meetings with architects and reformers in Montreal helped influence the creation of Mount Royal, a planned corporate suburb that began construction in late 1910. It's also important to recognize what Vivian achieved simply by being willing to travel across the country at that time. While he wasn't the first or only foreign expert to visit Canada before 1914, few amongst this group of early practitioners ventured outside of easily reached centers in the East like Montreal or Toronto or Halifax. Fewer still visited as many towns and cities as Vivian did. He personally took news of British planning ideas across the country and he was often the first planning expert his audiences would have met. Gray's work with Vivian was followed by his efforts to organize tours of Letchworth and Hampstead Garden Suburb for influential Canadian reformers, and his continued personal advocacy for British planning. He also pushed fellow elite Canadian planning supporters to lend their influence to the movement. For example, Gray's close associate, the Ottawa-based architect Colborne Powell Meredith, boasted Canadian social connections that rivaled Gray's own. Meredith's father was a former Canadian Secretary of State, and his mother, Fanny Jarvis, came from one of Toronto's wealthiest founding families. Meredith himself stood as president of the Royal Architectural, Architectural Institute of Canada 
during the the, uh, 1910s. And he not only helped Gray organize Vivian's tour, he also used his own networks to organize a second cross-Canadian tour for Vivian and the Scottish-born City Beautiful expert Thomas Mawson in 1912. Both Gray and Meredith's work illustrates the importance of elite planning brokers to Canada's early movement. Through mobilizing their connections to advance the importation of planning expertise, these elite brokers played a central role in early Canadian developments. The second type of networks I've analyzed are those built by individuals who sought out foreign ideas through travel and study. This category examined those whose wider professional and reform interests led them to connect to international planning developments through their own travel and self-education. Such actors included professionals in the fields of architecture and engineering, but also could mean um, civic officials, public health experts, and urban reformers. For example, William Burdett, a planning advocate from St. John, New Brunswick, was characteristic of municipal-level planning advocates within this category. A a businessman with an interest in housing reform, Burdett developed what he called a natural bent for planning, which led him to undertake an extensive, self-directed analysis of the writings of American and British planning experts. He also wrote to to foreign planners like Thomas Adams, obtained membership within American planning organizations, and traveled to attend international planning conferences. By the 1910s, he'd become a leading planning advocate within New Brunswick and helped push forward the province's first planning act in 1912. While Burdett largely kept his lobbying to the provincial level, a second actor in this category, Charles Hodgetts, I'm sorry, it's quite a creepy photo, but I've never found another one of him, so I'll try and get it off the screen as quickly as possible. Charles Charles Hodgetts uh, wielded national influence. Hailing from Toronto, Ontario, Dr. Charles Hodgetts was a leading Canadian public health expert who who became interested in planning through his work as a medical inspector and his role as an advisor to the Commission on Conservation, which was a national-level advisory organization. As medical advisor to the Commission from 1909 to 1914, Hodgetts did much to connect to the wider planning movement. He undertook a three-month planning tour of Great Britain, Ireland, and Germany. He also attended planning and urban reform conferences across Europe and the United States. He spoke widely on the benefits of the British planning measures he favoured between 1911 and 1914, and he he, he really favoured British methods, and he he really disliked American methods, and he goes on some quite epic rants against skyscrapers, if you're ever interested. Uh, They they lightened my, my load when I was doing some heavy archival research anyways. Um, Hodgetts used his Canadian and international planning connections to help organize a successful campaign to hire Thomas Adams as the Commission on Conservation's planning advisor. As the examples of William Burdett and Charles Hodgetts show, while individuals in the second category use travel and education to link to the planning movement, through their advocacy, they likewise became networks through which foreign ideas, the foreign ideas they championed, could be made known, could be made known locally and nationally. The third category of networks I focus on studies networks formed through the cross-Canadian circulation of ideas in planning journals and newspapers. While traveling to attend international conferences, tour cities, and personally meet with foreign experts delivered the most immediate links between Canadians and the transnational movement, many Canadian planning advocates, particularly those in landlocked western provinces, were limited in their travel by factors of expense and distance. For these individuals, foreign and Canadian planning journals in particular, which circulated across the country from the 1890s onwards, 
offered one of the most reliable connections to the international planning world. While foreign journals like the American City or British Garden Cities and Town Planning were valued for their reports of new developments, Canadian periodicals like the Canadian Municipal Journal, the Canadian Architect and Builder, and the Conservation of Life also provided crucial links to, the transna to transnational planning innovations. The domestic and foreign authors who wrote articles on planning strove to accurately describe advances and push for their adoption within Canada. Although this writing can become a bit dry to analyze, some authors did go out of their way to persuade their readers of the merits of new ideas. In 1893, for example, Montreal-based Alexander Hutchison traveled to Chicago to attend the World Columbian Exposition and view Amer American City Beautiful Architect Daniel Burnham's famed White City firsthand. Hutchison recounted Burnham's achievement in an article for the Canadian Architect and Builder, noting that what struck him most was the comprehensive nature of Burnham's plan for the exhibition grounds. Walking past the grand, white, classically inspired buildings, along boulevards and lush gardenscapes, Hutchison stated that although other exhibitions had likewise abandoned the old form of fair buildings and introduced new materials, the completeness with which Burnham's scheme had been carried out made this an entirely new departure. In a 1911 piece for the Canadian Municipal Journal, Montreal's then-mayor, Joseph Guérin, vividly recounted visiting Hampstead Garden Suburb. Through his eyes, we see Hampstead as a pristine, lush, sunshine-filled utopia. Its homes were white and clean with every modern commodity. The grounds were filled with flowers, and I really like this quote, such as someone might dream of finding in a luxurious southern clime. The rent was cheap in what he called a haven of security, and he also felt that children, adults, and seniors all lived together in good fellowship and breathed abundant fresh air. In a similar 1912 article written for Toronto's Globe newspaper, G. Ray Lemon, a Calgary-based planner, also took great pains to describe the sights and sounds he encountered on a German planning tour. Lemon opened this article by describing a stormy day in March that found him on a train trip to Munich. As he wrote, Our train was rushing through southern Bavaria, for miles we ran along beside tracts of wooded country. Here was a, a piece planted with young saplings, there yonder fine fir trees ready to be turned into lumber. Germany, I thought, is looking toward the future. In this land, the forest wealth is not wantonly destroyed. Upon arriving in Munich, Lemon stepped off the train and began walking about. He noted that while the city was generally famed for what he called a certain beverage that is brown in color, it stood out to him for its advances in planning particularly its introduction of street railways and superb grouping of civic buildings, which he went on to describe in some detail. In the nearly two decades before the Town Planning Institute of Canada created its own journal in 1919, these early periodicals functioned as a steady channel for the exchange of planning ideas, and in some cases turned their landlocked readers into armchair tourists by offering vivid descriptions of new innovations. Crucially, as my study of Canadian journals and newspapers has shown, the information contained within these early articles illustrates that far from standing outside the, planning, the transnational planning field in the years before Adams' arrival, English-Canadian authors and readers were well-versed in the advances made beyond their national borders and were eager to consider bringing these practices to their home country. My final category studies planning networks created through Canadians attending international conferences and exhibitions. For those lucky enough to attend, 
few venues offered more scope for learning of new advances than international planning conferences. Such, uh, such events brought together leading experts and inundated participants with the latest advances in planning practice, essentially providing attendees with an international toolkit of solutions to urban issues, from which they could then select the ideas that best fit local conditions. In the early 1900s, international conferences offered Canadian planning enthusiasts unique entrance into the international planning scene. Canadians attended events in Belgium and England and also regular, regularly traveled to conferences and exhibitions across the United States. Though I haven't come across any examples of Canadians presenting at conferences in Europe, I do know that they participated in recorded discussions at events uh, like the 1910 First International Planning Conference in London. Also from 1911 onwards, Canadian planning advocates became regular presenters at the American National Conference on City Planning, offering reports on planning progress throughout eastern and western Canadian cities. Canadians also took advantage of the opportunities created by these events and sought connections with foreign colleagues they met there. One, planning, one planner I studied, the Ottawa-based architect Nulan Cochon, filled a scrapbook of his archives with the business cards and details of the individuals he met at international conferences, and a succession of planners in the province of Saskatchewan and Australia corresponded up until the 1930s, thanks to a meeting between the Saskatchewan planner William Baig and the South Australian planning director Charles Reed at a conference in the 1910s. Additionally, it was through attending international conferences that Canadian planning advocates were personally introduced to Thomas Adams, Let's bring him up again, and convinced him to take up a position in Ottawa. At the 1911 National Conference on City Planning in Philadelphia, Thomas Adams met with Dr. Charles Hodgetts. Again, he's the British planning supporter and medical advisor to Canada's Commission on Conservation. By this time, Adams enjoyed a reputation as one of the most recognized planning experts within the transnational planning world. Like many early planners, he hadn't set out to join the profession. He moved to London from Edinburgh in the 1870s and worked as a journalist before befriending Ebenezer Howard, the inventor of the Garden City movement. Adams soon devoted himself to Howard's movement. He helped direct the building of Letchworth, the first Garden City, in the early 1900s. He helped found Britain's Town Planning Institute in 1913. And between 1909 and 1914, he moved to even greater prominence after the British government tasked him with overseeing the implementation of its first Town Planning Act. By all accounts, Adams enjoyed his international recognition, or at least accepted it, and willingly travelled across Europe and the United States to lecture and attend planning events. After speaking with Adams at the 1911 conference, Hodgetts and his colleagues became convinced he was the one man who had sound ideas on town planning and housing. With the help of members of the Commission on Conservation and groups of planning advocates from across Canada, Hodgetts lobbied the Commission to offer Adams the position of, a of National Town Planning Advisor. While Adams and the British government initially refused, Hodgetts and other Commission members continued to liaise with him and used all the types of channels available to them to meet with him and to write to and about him in the ensuing years. Finally, in the spring of 1914, Adams came to Toronto to attend an international plan planning conference there. At this event, Adams met with representatives of the Commission and finally agreed to take on the role. He arrived back in Canada in late 1914 and was officially announced as the Commission's planning advisor in early 1915. As I illustrate through my case studies, this case study of early Canadian planning network, Adams did not introduce Can Canadians to foreign planning ideas. 
His arrival more marked the high point and key result of nearly two decades of transnational exchanges. He was also not the first foreign planning expert to work in Canada. Noted American City Beautiful practitioners like Frederick Law Olmsted, Edward Bennett, and the Scottish Thomas Mawson had previously accepted planning contracts in cities like Montreal, Ottawa, Calgary, and Vancouver. Adams was, however, the first international expert to accept such a central role, and though he didn't create an all-conquering British influence, his prestige and advocacy did help establish a preference for British planning ideas, and especially for British-style town planning legislation. I'm now going to move on to the second case study I'll present on this evening, which examines the province of Saskatchewan's experience with its British-based planning legislation between 1915 and the late 1920s. There we go. I've just, this is a map of Canada. I've put a big arrow up to Saskatoon. I, usually, I just usually throw this most of my talks because I often don't present on this in Canada and sometimes people look blankly at me where I, when I talk about Saskatchewan. So I especially develop that anyways. But I'm sure you all know where Saskatchewan is. <laughs> Easiest province to draw. Uh, when Britain's first town planning act was introduced in 1909, it garnered national and international interest as the first piece of legislation to attempt to regulate and set out how planning should proceed across an entire country. Although non-compulsory, the act enabled local authorities to make plans for areas that were deemed in course of development or likely to be used for building purposes. All aspects of the act were administered by the local government board, a national supervisory body that existed from 1871 to 1919 to oversee issues of public health, local governance and welfare. Under the Act, the, lo the local government board alone granted local authorities permissions to plan and improved any planning approved any planning schemes. As town planning advisor to the local government board, Thomas Adams became a champion of the British Act and carried his enthusiasm for the legislation over to Canada. In the months following his 1915 appointment with the Commission on Conservation, Adams helped draft model provincial plan a Model Provincial Planning Act based on the British legislation and thereafter made his way across Canada, visiting cities in nearly every province to persuade civic and provincial authorities to support and adopt his draft act. From his arrival, Adams made it known that he wanted to, quote, make history in Canada with regard to planning legislation. He hoped all provinces would enact planning laws by January 1916, and he had some reason to expect this could be achieved, since in the years preceding his arrival, preceding his arrival, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Alberta had passed acts modeled on Britain's 1909 legislation. One of the first sites he targeted in his campaign was Saskatchewan, a western province established in 1905 whose citizens were open to adopting foreign planning measures. Visits by international experts like Henry Vivian in 1910 and Thomas Mawson in 1912 helped generate and bolster an interest in garden city and city beautiful type plans across the province. Some of its cities had even taken steps to implement such practices. In 1912, Saskatoon hired the Welsh-born engineer and garden city advocate Christopher Yorath as city commissioner and tasked him with designing a city plan, which I've put up here, uh, and he published this in 1913. In the same year, the provincial government and city of Regina both hired Thomas Mawson to devise, plan, devise plans for the legislative grounds and whole of the city. When Adams arrived in Saskatchewan in 1915, he therefore found a receptive audience. He spoke to local urban reform and business organizations, 
and he either met with or correspond he either met or corresponded with every member of the province's legislative assembly. When these members agreed to consider his legislation, Adams worked with provincial government representatives and legal advisors to finesse the act, and it passed into law in late 1917. Though Saskatchewan's 1917 Act borrowed the spirit, framework, and often even wording of Britain's 1909 Act, it did crucially divide from this parent legislation. It was the first Canadian planning act to legally compel municipalities to create town plans and submit them to a provincial planning director. Thanks to this compulsory element, the act initially garnered widespread pay, praise, and I should note praise mainly outside of Saskatchewan, which becomes an issue as we go on. Uh, Thomas Adams named it probably the most advanced planning legislation in any country, and a domestic planning journal called the legislation one of the best town planning acts in the world. However, as the province's town planning director, William Begg, noted, praise alone could not guarantee the act's success. As he stated, even the best of plans will fail unless there is at the back of them the understanding and support of the average citizen. Like Begg identified, from the outset, Saskatchewan's acts really failed to find support from the province's municipalities. While some local authorities noted that in the wake of recession and in the First World War, they had few funds to spare for city planning, other citizens wrote to Begg, protesting that the act did not meet the needs of local residents. For example, some individuals complained the act failed to account for the differing requirements of business versus residential properties and encouraged Begg to consider amending the act to allow for American-style zoning plans. Such plans gained popularity in the United States in the 19, from 1916 onwards and divided urban space into residential, industrial, and business districts while also regulating building heights and density. In 1921, Begg wrote to Adams about the act's lack of success and the failure of any local authority to submit a plan. He also detailed the growing support for zoning. In response, Adams lectured Begg to, to stand behind the legislation and insist the municipalities come to order. Despite his respect for Adams, Begg had had enough of administrating um, the increasingly unpopular and cumbersome legislation. From 1922 onwards, he instead devoted himself to learning about zoning, communicating with American planners, traveling to nearby Minnesota to view zoning bylaws in action in St. Paul, and working to revise Saskatchewan's act. He, allowed he did allow municipalities to craft zoning legislation, and in 1922, the city of Moose Jaw became perhaps the first Canadian municipality to put a zoning law in place. I'll just stop there quickly to note why I said Moose Jaw perhaps became. Um, that's a picture of Moose Jaw. Uh, during this time, the 1920s, there was a bit of an unofficial competition going on in Canada to see what town or city could pass the first zoning bylaw. There was a lot of... Um, I chiefly studied British Columbia and Saskatchewan and Ontario, Quebec, but in those provinces, certainly everyone was really rushing to put in a zoning bylaw. They really wanted them. Um, and in 1923, the Town Planning Institute of Canada's journal produced this grand article celebrating Kitchener, Ontario for putting the first zoning bylaw into place. This really upset William Begg, and he wrote quite a scathing letter to the editor, uh, standing up for Moose Jaw and the nearby town of Wilkie, Saskatchewan, uh, who'd also passed zoning, and Wilkie had also passed a zoning bylaw following Moose Jaw's 1922. Uh, the problem was that Kitchener, uh, Kitchener's Zoning Act, came into place in 1922, but kept being finessed until 1924. And I haven't been able to find out the exact months Moose Jaw versus Kitchener versus Wilkie's came into place. Um, but I have to say, 
as somebody who grew up in Saskatchewan, a province that's always struggling to assert itself next to its eastern provincial neighbours, uh, I kind of hope I kind of hope Moose Jaw wins at some point because right now it's having a real struggle. You, you might have heard that recently. Um, it's one claim to fame was that it had right there the biggest moose statue in the world, but uh, Oslo has recently had the gall to produce a purposely bigger moose statue, and. Um, so Moose just feeling down at the moment. It's where my grandfather was born. You know, I'm trying to do my best to restore its honor. <laughs> Anyways, when Baig unexpectedly passed away in 1924, his successor continued to work uh, on zoning and amending the act, writing to colleagues across Canada, the United States, and even Malaysia for advice. In 1927, the province's Department of Municipal Affairs presented new planning legislation uh, to the government that did away with the compulsory nature of the 1917 Act and allowed municipalities to enact zoning bylaws. This Act passed in 1928 and met with generally genuine approval from local residents. As Saskatchewan's experience underscores, though Adams's tenure in Canada did usher in a preference for British innovations, his presence did not end local exchanges with other planning movements. Instead of cleaving to this unpopular legislation out of loyalty to Adams or the British approach, Saskatchewan's planning directors continued to use transnational planning networks to acquire new ideas. In doing so, they demonstrated the continued dynamism of Canadian planning networks, not only during Adams's years in Canada, but also in the period after. They also illustrated that Adams's all-conquering British influence was not as total as um, has been presumed. So to conclude, as I hope I've established, although it has been suggested that Canadian urban reformers and planning advocates largely stood outside the transnational planning cohort and that local knowledge of foreign advances in modern planning largely arrived with the British Thomas Adams in 1914, this is not the case. From the late 1890s onwards, a dynamic group of Canadian planning supporters became interested in modern urban planning and worked to connect to the wider transnational planning movement as I've also argued, while Thomas Adams has been named, quote, the imperial umbilical cord that brought Canadian planning to birth, such accolades go too far. However, despite my work to decenter Adams from the narrative of Canadian planning, I don't mean to discredit the work he did do or underplay the influence British planning had on early Canadian developments in planning. While Adams may not have introduced Canadians to planning, he was central to the growth and evolution of the movement in Canada throughout his tenure. Reflecting on the gains made during his time in the country, Adams noted, in no country was there more town planning activity than there was in Canada. He advised urban municipalities and provinces, but also turned his focus to issues facing rural, mining, lumber, and fishing communities. Uh, he paid attention to the widespread issues of insufficient working class housing, and in 1918, helped lobby the government, the federal government, to provide $25 million in loans to finance housing schemes across the country. He also accepted private commissions and most notably worked to replan sections of Halifax uh, after a devastating explosion in 1918. Though I don't have time to set out an exhausted list of all Adams' work in Canada, I'd like to end my discussion of him by mentioning perhaps his most lasting Canadian legacy. Throughout his tenure, Adams devoted much time to working with local landscape architects, architects, engineers and surveyors to establish planning as an officially recognized profession. In 1919, he helped found the Town Planning Institute of Canada and sat as its first president. The Institute has now represented Canadian planners for a century and stands as a continued testament to Adams' place in the history of Canada's planning movement.
So instead of challenging Adams' achievements, I hope that by bringing to light the extraordinary efforts of Canadian planning advocates throughout the early 1900s, my research has, more, has, has done a lot to enrich our understanding of early Canadian and transnational planning history. As I somewhat leave this work behind to start on new projects, like uh, as Tony introduced in my beginning of the talk, I can't help but reflect on the unique nature of the research this project has demanded. The work of identifying and tracing these cross-Canadian and transnational exchanges has sharpened my detective skills and weathered more than one of my passports. For example, piecing together one set of correspondence between two British and two Canadian planners over the summer of 1911 took me six years of visiting different archives in Ottawa, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Manchester, and most recently Durham. Such research has also proved unexpectedly personal. As familiarity and friendships grew between colleagues across political and geographic boundaries, letters began revealing glimpses of their authors' ambitions, frustrations, and personal lives. One set of letters I followed between a Western Canadian planner and his American colleague often saw the two trade as much information about their fishing pursuits as they did about planning and zoning. Another group of letters I discovered while researching Scottish planner Patrick Geddes saw me frantically scrubbing away tears as he movingly described the death of his son Alistair in the First World War um, and lamented the loss of his famed travelling planning exhi exhibit in a shipwreck. I found all this research enlightening and rewarding and I very much appreciate the chance to share my findings with you this evening. Thank you for your patience and attention. started by talking about the contrast between the city beautiful and the garden city. Yes. <clears throat> now, one of the critical things, surely, is that most Canadian cities that are being planned at this time are pretty small. Mm. Uh, and so, is it just for that kind of a reason, you know, the city beautiful isn't going to work in, uh, isn't really going to work in Saskatoon, um, because okay, you can have one sort of grand vista of a sort of one provincial building, but there's not going to be much more in the way of laying out diagonals and all the sort of grand planning um, streets that, um, that most city beautiful would go into. Whereas the Garden City movement, I mean, the whole thing about the Garden City was it was supposed to be a, a town which was small enough for you to do everything in and, and not to have... Um, um, complicated um, in and out movements. It was supposed to be self-contained and, and stuff like that, which I guess is what most Canadian cities that were being planned in the, in the early 20th century were. So um, that would seem to me to be, you know, one of the obvious routes into, you know, why garden cities are so popular. But the other issue that I wanted to pick up is about is really about the politics behind planning, mm. and particularly the issue about is planning a top-down thing where government or local government says what is to be done and what government says is done because there's a lot of public investment, or is it really very much 
a facilitating the private sector so that the private sector can do all the work, and particularly in the area of sort of housing, facilitating home ownership or at least some sort of cooperative ownership, like the, the co-partnership movement. So there's lots of things tangled up there, but can, can we can you unpack some of those? You can try to. First, we talk about politics. Like, I think lots of, um, lots of the, the people who advocated for planning wanted to kind of come from the top down. You know, they, they wanted um, civic administrators to put in these plans, but th- there was always a tension... With, with money and you know over the, the period I say that there's not a ton of actual planning done there's you know reams of discussion about planning and beautiful framed posters of, of plans that come out but there's, there's not a ton of, of planning done and as you also pointed out with the kind of politics of it one, one thing I find fascinating is when you look at the people who were most strongly advocating for planning they're such um, they have such diverse reasons for wanting it first of all as, as you mentioned you almost don't find anyone who's very vocal about planning who's not a businessman who has this kind of um especially in cooperative housing like uh you know they they wanted better working class housing because they felt it would benefit their residents and and that was a key motivator pushing them them forward um i'm trying to think if i can think of any good examples i kind of lost my thought of thought there sorry um and then also just with the tension between the garden city and the the city beautiful what i've been finding is in western canada in the early 1900s when there was lots of immigration happening and these cities were you know becoming incorporated they were interested in the city beautiful because they wanted to make themselves look really grand and beautiful i mean none of them really did they're gorgeous posters of these plans and then the um the recession of 1913 happened and nobody had any money uh, but what my first, my next project is going to study is um, often when early councils and town boosters push for city beautiful plans, what they were really trying to, or one thing they were trying to do, was separate the land from um, connections with indigenous peoples and with being like a savage prairie. I think having, in their minds, having like these grand classical buildings would really help attract business and make them look not like a backwater, like. You know, it's often lots of words were like, it's safe to do business here, or like, you'll think you're in Europe even though you're in the wild prairie because we're going to have these beautiful buildings. And then after the recession, um, like in Saskatoon, when Christopher Yorath comes in 1912, he's a big advocate for, uh, for City Beautiful and really more, or sorry, sorry, Garden City and really more rational planning. And he really pushes the town council in Saskatoon and says, you are in such debt, you need rational planning, we don't need fancy white buildings, like you just need better street organization and green spaces and parks. So that's what I found. I find it's easier to see the push and pull between City Beautiful and Garden City in Western Canada because, as you said, these are new towns that are trying to figure out what's going on. And most of them, you know, were already planned. Like the railway had the plan, the T intersection with the the railway uh, station at the front and a main street down the side and then houses and stuff. So, um, so yeah, it, when it comes to the push and pull between the City Beautiful and Garden City, that, that's where I've noticed it most easily. And I can think more about the... I think I just have too many ideas about all the different politics of it. We can talk about that more later. <laughs> oh, I think... Yeah. No, just to perhaps build on a comment... Uh, uh, an interesting example in Winnipeg is uh, you have 
as the railway was getting built, and Winnipeg was supposed to be the Chicago of Canada, um, you have a four-lane street on the west side. You have the workers' residences, which are still in existence today, about a thousand square feet. I realize that's probably pretty big for here, but about a thousand square foot homes. On the east side are the management homes, and that's the 1,800 to 2,000 square foot homes built early 1900s. And they still in existence today. We lived in one of them. The downside to where the management was living is it tended to slope down to the river and it would get flooded. So the 1950 flood took out that part of town and the people who lived on the other side were less effective. Uh, but I, if, if you were looking for maybe an example of certainly where uh, an industry thing looked at where people were living and how that got divided, this, this is a, a good illustration of it. And just to reflect on um, one of your first illustrations um, of the Edmonton plant. Right here, the it's about the third or fourth in. Next one. Next one. Oh. Yes. There you go. That very much reflects Winnipeg and where you have the legislative buildings and the grounds going down to the river and then the grounds going right up to where the Hudson Bay Company, big store is sort of like the, even until recently, almost the Harrods of, of Winnipeg kind of a thing. And it had that vista almost exactly like that where uh, just because, again, with the narrowing of the streets, it sort of turns more towards a pie shape as you go further than the ledge. Uh, having recently worked uh, for the Department of Infrastructure and Transportation with Alberta, about 10 years ago, they started planning exactly that type of vista, where they uh, started, uh, so now you can, from the major street, in Edmonton, you can look down and actually now see the legislative building because they've cleared out a lot of the buildings. And they were very interesting uh, garden-based um, plans for that area. And uh, to try to, I guess, follow this sort of plan because until probably uh, 25 years ago, this was all just covered in with, with apartment buildings and blocks and stuff. I don't know if if you've ever traced those and brought them up to, uh, to today's time. But I know the, the planners and infrastructure were trying to introduce that gardenscape. Yeah. I remember when I requested this photo from the Edmonton Provincial or from the Alberta Provincial Archives, City of Edmonton Archives, sorry, so many archives. Um, they did say that actually uh, the printed plan and the photos from it had become more popular, and I didn't. I, think I didn't actually have to pay for this one because they digitized it already for use by the provincial government. So they probably are have been looking back at these plans. So lucky me. <laughs> I guess I was much worse than Tapestone. I'm thinking about Saskatchewan because I lived there for a while. I'm, and I'm thinking about how you, how they, how 
you have these very grand ideas coming out of the UK, coming out of the rest of the world. And I'm thinking about the prairies, and I'm thinking about migration and particular groups that chose to live in particular places, the development of the railways, the development of the highway going through, and, and the climate, and the geography. Some are on rivers, some are in the middle. The, the incredibly complex context for planners to say, well, let's buy Garden City or whatever the American plan, and plunk it down here and see if it's going to work. Yeah. Did you not find that this was rather naive? It was naive, and I did look at that, but what, what I kind of finally came to is, I don't think they were deliberately being naive. They were just looking around for planning models and you know didn't have any assurances that it would work, but saw it was working somewhere else and kind of plonked it down in, in the hope it would work rather than um, in the expectation that it would work. And then as you see with with the Planning Act of 1917, it's modeled on the British legislation, but what they find when it's in action is it you know, didn't suit Saskatchewan conditions at all and you know, almost immediately had to be revised. And I didn't get into it here, but in my dissertation, I look at British Columbia and they didn't put planning legislation in until 1925. And that's a bit more interesting because by that time, they had kind of seen the lessons from other provinces and their act did combine... Um, American, British, but also kind of more Canadian-grown responses. So, yeah, I, I found that um, you know, in the early stage there was a lot of plonking down, hoping it would work. But it, it was, it was maybe naive, but I think it was also just it was such a foreign landscape, and you know, didn't even really understand all the things they'd be facing. And there was. Um, you know, kind of from the very beginning of Europeans building settlements in Canada, this real wish to um, border this themselves in and, and produce familiar landscapes. So, you know, you see with um, Hudson's Bay fur trade, fort, fur trade forts and with RCMP outposts, you know, the barricades, but inside um, very elegant British-style gardens or um, in Saskatchewan, there's this very famous Farragut homestead and they have built these huge bushes and inside again like perfect landscaped late um, 1800s British gardens so it's just this real wish to kind of um, combat everything that was unfamiliar with something that they recognized so yeah I think there was a, cause a lot of the people who are most vocal like in Saskatchewan um, were of British origin and I didn't really have time to get into it but uh, one of the reasons why the act passes so quickly is because the um, minister for municipal affairs at the time was British and was actually a friend of Ebenezer Howard and had um, been to salons that Howard had hosted in Britain. So when um, when uh, Thomas Adams came across the country talking about the Garden City and British legislation, George Langley was like, oh, I know everything about that and I'm all for it and what can I do to help you? So that was interesting too, like their... You know the, the people who are rising to power at that time are generally of British origin, and if not directly from Britain, and you know did a lot to kind of f favor what was happening in their home country. You don't find a lot of Ukrainians at that time on the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have to I have to look into it. One of my great great uncles was a member of the Legislative Assembly, and he would have been Mennonite, but I, I don't think not during that time. Yeah. Uh, I found that to be a hugely illuminating uh, paper, Catherine. I don't know much about the subject, but 
I do know that in several cases um, in America and Europe, there was what you seem to be describing here, town planning. I'm thinking you could go back as far to the 1790s in Washington and George Washington's um, recruitment of General L'Enfant to plan Washington. And then in New York, of course, the commissioner's map of Manhattan and the grid pattern. And then, of course, in Paris, uh, Bannon Houseman and the renovation, as they call it in a very modest use of the word renovation of, of Paris. So I'm questioning whether this development um, started. I, I'm wondering why you uh, seem to be suggesting that there was a, if not a watershed, a new period beginning from the 1890s. It's probably not a fair question. Let me jump to one that... I think maybe more fair. And it came to mind when I was looking at that photograph of uh, Moustraw. If we can go back to it very quickly, you might very instantly uh, uh, guess what I'm getting at. What is Moustraw? Okay, there we go. There's something in that photograph that indicates a major transformation uh, from the start of your period to the end, yeah. and it's the it's the yeah the transformation the revolution in transportation from horse and buggy to the automobile, yeah. and the question obviously is to what extent did the advent of the automobile transform the whole concept of planning, town planning? I don't know if it transformed planning, but they definitely paid a lot of attention to it and um, uh, one of my one of the things I study in my dissertation is a 1926 plan for Vancouver which was um, it, it's interesting because it was the first town planning contract offered in Canada the first large contract uh, after the creation of the Town Planning Institute of Canada so you had all these um, planners across Canada thinking like great this is the time we're going to test ourselves or we finally have an institute those Americans aren't going to pull one on us but Vancouver hired an American, Harlan Bartholomew, to come in. And you really do see um, what, what they're most interested in is because Vancouver is such a, a kind of economic hub, but also a transportation hub, having the train, an endpoint of the train, and um, having all the water in the harbors, but also having lots of cars and increasingly trucks and stuff coming in. Um, a transportation plan and zoning and street planning to help the easy flow of transportation, that was a huge concern of theirs. And that's the first plan where I... Lots of other plans start to consider it. Like Vivian was quite um, emphatic that people had to start thinking about cars. Like uh, he talks a lot about how they're only going to get faster and come on more. We really have to think about what's going to happen. He's worried about pedestrians getting run over. But the 1926 plan for for me, what I studied was where, and so I think the 1920s. That's where cars are becoming more accessible. People are thinking about cars more. As best they know, this picture was taken in 1930. So yeah, they were really considering cars more, but from what I see, it generally comes in. It's expected that cars are going to, to be a big deal in the 1910s, but they start really planning for them in the 1920s or, or really making that an integral part of what they want done for their city. So one big thing then that car does is to allow for much lower densities. It makes it a lot easier to do garden city type yeah. planning if you haven't got to build, you know, a, a sort of 20 or 30 houses to the acre or yeah. something like that. It also ought then 
to make the British experience le and European experience generally less relevant yeah, uh, to the Canadians and, and direct them to start looking more at the United States yeah. than, than a, a Europe. And do you sense that that's going on in international networks through the 1920s? That, you know, because we're, we're so far behind with, with car ownership compared yeah. to North America. especially because in like a lot of my research in the 1920s was in the west and um they were still recovering so much from the the kind of debt-ridden 1910s that they they weren't worried so much about suburbanization so i i don't i don't find a lot of them looking to america specifically for that but as i said there there is a preoccupation with zoning and zoning had a lot to do with the car and um, you know, zoning outlying suburbs for residential and industrial zones and worrying about that. So I think the answer is, is yes, even if I haven't, if I can't exactly point to, uh, you know, precise examples, I would say yes, it is. But the other thing about mm. zoning yeah, yeah. is that it's to facilitate the way that the private market yeah. operates. And of course, by this stage in, in Britain and to a lesser extent, but different kinds of social housing in Britain. You've got a big social housing movement, council housing being built post-First World War, you know, huge social housing estates being built on the edges of London and Manchester and so on in the, in the 20s and 30s. And you're not going down that route in North America. You're going down a, a private housing route yeah. almost entirely. Yeah. Um, uh, for which zoning, yeah, Again, sort of zoning is almost irrelevant because planning is top down anyway yeah. in Britain. <laughs> no, and for when you look at who's uh, writing into the city councils and to um, planning commissions to request zoning, it's it's almost always rich businessmen, and they mm. want the best routes to facilitate their trade. But what they also want is um, to make protective enclaves so that their land values mm. don't increase. Like if you you study department buildings and what. Yeah, it's, it's all, it's all yeah. about land values. It's, yeah, it's all, all about, about maximising land values, land values yeah. by prescribing what isn't allowed in each area. Yeah, so that you can be confident in investing. Exactly, because I'm in, in this really wealthy area of Vancouver Point Grey. Uh, when I was at the Vancouver Archives, there was just these stacks of folders of Point Grey re residents furious that they, they'd heard a rumour that there was going to be two apartment buildings allowed in the area and what that would do and you know they um they actually instituted the first um kind of protective covenant over their neighborhood saying that only single family homes could be built and uh, they had to be a certain cost and you couldn't mess with the lot and it was it was all because of the specter of the apartment building and um you know what would happen if four families could live in a building and what you know what class would they be and also keeping indigenous and Chinese residents out of the, the area as well. So zoning, the biggest advocates are zoning. They, they kind of dress it in language of like, we want to make sure that cars run smoothly or our business runs smoothly. But the other big thing is we want to make sure our housing holds its value and that we live in a neighborhood that stays the way we want it to stay. Which I, I hope to look at more with my next, with my, my current project, because, you know, it's all about pushing indigenous peoples off land and protecting it and yeah it's all very racist basically <laughs> was, that, was that the same a concern with African Americans 
Canadians Yes. Uh, and I don't know if there are one there. No, there are. There's uh, in Winnipeg. There's. I'm just starting to show you the suburb of Roostertown, which was a. Well, sorry. That's Métis. Uh, Africville, which is in. Oh, what maritime? Uh, Halifax. Halifax, yeah. yeah. That was uh, a black Canadian suburb, and there's a whole very sad history of the marginalization of that suburb, and eventually it's complete raising despite the protests of the people who lived there. So, um, yes, but to a lesser extent. Yeah. Just on social housing bit, there's a chunk in North End Winnipeg that was built post World War II for the returning World War II vets. Mm. And it's a neighborhood of maybe 10, 15 blocks one way and about six the other way. And all the homes are literally either 900 square feet or 1,100 square feet because it's a story and a half. And literally that whole neighborhood has those two styles of homes unless somebody in the last 50 years has renovated them. They're all exactly the same kind of thing. And I think partially, from what I understood, to address that uh, World War II vets coming home and making sure they had a place to, to stay kind of a thing. Yeah, the same kind of thing in the, um, the First World War when the government gave that $25 million in loans. That was part of the War Measures Act, and it was really about making sure there were enough homes, homes for the soldiers coming back. And same thing in the, and there's homes like that in Saskatoon. My mom is always like, oh, and here's the Second World War houses. And, yeah. Because yeah. the other question I was going to have is, how could all this be happening while we're fighting the war? Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it's quite funny. I remember at one point during my research, I was getting so kind of insulated by it and looking at all this planning that happened in 1914. I did step back and I said to my supervisor, oh, wait, like the, the war's going on. Like, how are they? Um, but I, I would say like a lot of stuff that was going on with the war was talk rather than action. And um, you know, like some of the, the the bigger like planning projects that happened during 1914 during like the, the war were things like redoing the Hydrostone district in Halifax after the explosion. Um, that you know, there, there was especially at the municipal level, a, a real cessation of talks about planning because they were just so in debt that there was no interest in going forward with anything. So th there was still a lot of talk and hope and I mean much more so than in the Great Depression where everything just kind of stops. That's why it was quite nice to stop my analysis in 1930 because the Town Planning Institute um, basically it goes on hiatus because nobody wants to, to join anymore or pay dues and um, there's not much planning done because no one has any money. So was dreading a question on Quebec, but I'll, as, a, as a Montrealer, I have to uh, I have to hold you to account to that because you are a fellow uh, McGill grad, and I, you know Montreal, you know the Square Mile, and you know it was very English. My point is this: Montreal was not a French Canadian city during this period. It was a very English city, English Canadian city. British Canadian, I, has, I hasten to add, because the main influence was Scottish, of course, McGill, McConnell, McLennan, going, McCord. I could go, McCord, um, Dominion Square, Victoria Square, Phillips Square, 
uh, one thing that Richard pointed out to me after I gave a paper some years ago was how many squares there are, public squares there are in, yeah. in Montreal compared to Toronto. Um, it's all city planning, and I can't help thinking that it was largely British in its influence, perhaps largely Scottish. But again, to get to a more specific question, in terms of French Canada, and perhaps you can't ask, but answer this question, but the families were substantially larger French-Canadian families, and within Montreal, with the urbanization at the turn of the century uh, of rural French-Canadians moving to, to Montreal, you had huge families of 10, 12, 13, 14 children um, moving to the city and requiring a whole different type of planning. Um, I'm not speaking from any knowledge here. I'm just apart from what I've said, but I'm just wondering if you or Richard could shed some light on, you know, whether there was some dichotomy in, in, in Montreal or Quebec, more generally speaking, with regard to French Canadian planning and English Quebec planning, or if you follow me. Well, one thing about Montreal is that, you know, although there is this kind of Anglo-Canadian dominance, mm -hmm. when it came to reform, um, there was... You know, there were a lot of French, French Catholic and French philanthropic reform groups, and they did work in concert with um, English groups. Um, and you know, um, there's also French Protestant groups. There were Jewish reform groups, and they all came together under the umbrella of the Montreal Civic Improvement League. There's a, there's a bunch of Montreal organizations with very similar names. I think that's what that was called. Mm -hmm. And they they had bilingual meetings, and they did work together. A common a lot of research has been done on this. You know, housing in Montreal, working-class housing was a, a huge issue. Mm -hmm. um, in the late 1800s, you had um, our, uh, Montreal kind of socialist businessman Herbert Ames doing a really um, eye-opening report on, mm -hmm. on the city below the hill, yeah. uh, how horrific the housing yeah. was in Montreal. So um, planning is a huge preoccupation in Montreal, mm -hmm. um, but there is this push and pull between French and English, and um, uh, it's quite interesting, like, Thomas Adams doesn't make very much headway at all there because of French planners being um, wary of, of this English influence. And I briefly mentioned Nuland Cochon, who was actually a French-born um, Canadian planner. He moved to Ottawa, and even he couldn't do much in Quebec because they were wary of him because even though he spoke French, he wasn't really French anymore. And So if, if there's more to say, but there definitely a huge worry was housing. And in Montreal, as in Toronto, one of the big things was it wasn't like the new prairie cities. These were really old, old cities, so yeah. there wasn't a ton you could do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is about sort of municipal structure. You know, just thinking about Montreal, all the new developments that are going on sort of around the First World War aren't in the city yeah. of Montreal. They're in Oshelaga yeah. or Outremont or yeah. Westmount or, yeah. or wherever. And to some extent, the same is true in Toronto, in yeah. sort of, you know, East York and, and places like that. Yeah, those, those, um, um, and I assume that the Western cities had much simpler municipal structures. Did Saskatoon have to deal with sort of rural municipalities that uh, got much. in the way? You no, know, the only thing the Western people have to deal with is... Um, the it, issue of ballooning land speculation. Yeah. I remember when I was studying in Saskatchewan, the archives. I started going to the archives there in 20. 
2014, 2013, and he told me that only in 2012 had Saskatoon reached the limits of what speculators pushed it to in the early 1900s. Like, so these Western cities more had this problem of all these um, real estate interests had speculated about how huge the cities were going to be. You know, they pushed local councils to um, build. Uh, tram tracks and electricity and water out to these suburbs that, that then went empty and the city had to take care of them. So that there was that more so, like, if they had to worry about outlying areas, it was more just like, what are we going to do with this land that we're not all stuck with, a tram line to nowhere, thanks a lot, like, yeah. They have great names too, like Utopia and Fruit Haven, and it's really interesting. What might be the final question myself, if I may, which is, uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, Canadian, Canadian urban planning, uh, which I know nothing about, uh, within the framework of the North Atlantic Triangle, which I know something about, North Atlantic Triangle, the traditional idea of John Bartlett, Brevner, Canada, uh, Britain and the United States uh, acting historically as a triangle, the story is really essentially from early conflict, more through uh, cooperation, certainly always rivalry. And what you were saying about the American model and the British model, the planning as it were, uh, seemed to me to suggest a certain amount of rivalry between them. And within Canada, uh, or amongst Canadian urban planners, or those that would become urban planners, something of a choice in this competition between those two models. So that's North Atlantic Triangle, yeah. in broadly defined. I'm just wondering how far the choice of individual Canadian urban planners was influenced not just on the merits of the models, but on, on the, an American versus a, a British uh, type. Yeah. I haven't, I found less direct evidence of that than I meant to, but there certainly is some of it. Um, in the early 1900s, there was a competition to design a plan for Ottawa, and eventually they awarded it to uh, Edward Bennett, who was an American city planner. And at that point, um, Canadian planners were were outraged that they would first choose a non-Canadian, but more specifically choose someone who wasn't even British to plan it. So at this time, there was, like, Bennett was a well-respected planner. He had links to um, Burnham. He'd worked on the, the famous plan of Chicago. Like, he was a very established person. He had great credentials. But it, it mattered to Canadians in the know that, um, especially uh, Colburn Powell Meredith, the architect I talk about, I found it interesting. He is very mad about Bennett being hired. He actually resigns from the commission that oversees Ottawa on the matter. But um, Meredith was a huge supporter of the city beautiful and of Thomas Mawson. So he would have thought Bennett would have been his guy. But no, but you know, Bennett wasn't even British. So it didn't matter so much. So that's an area where I did find that like there was this this preference. But then as, as the kind of um, 1920s came along, there, there was more of a rejection of, I mean, a rejection because there's still a lot of, you know, cleaving to the, the Union Jack. But uh, as they found that these British models they were plonking down didn't work, there was more of a kind of, we're going to look to America because, you know, um, Minnesota has the same prairie conditions as Saskatchewan and stuff is working there as it's working here. So it's a recognition of similar geography. And that starts to maybe supersede 
Um, well, that mirrors the general pattern, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And more towards American influence. Yeah. I may be in touch with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for, um, uh, to Catherine. Thank you very much for your questions for a very interesting seminar. Thank you. Thank you.